0: At the beginning of the play, that's all backstory. At the beginning of the play...
1: Everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson
0: Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Welcome back for week four of season seven, and it's about the time in the season where we stop saying welcome to early in the season, da-da, right? Da-da, right? Da-da, da-da, yeah, da-da. yeah. But I can't help but do what we have always done in these early seasons, which is just. Marvel at the really cool, different slates of scripts we get. It's something about the early season that makes me feel like I got to marvel about it. We've had (laughs) a, a wild new musical. We then went back and talked about one of the great American dramas ever, by one of the great American dramatists, ever. And then we talked about a really theatrical, really funny, um, kind of underknown play by one of the great playwrights, Paul Vogel. And now we're talking about a relatively new, kind of witty, gender-based play. It's, it's, a, it's a blast to be on this kind of a trip, and to just go back and forth between all these different kinds of theater. It makes you excited for what drama and dramatic literature is.
1: Right, to kind of piece together the different sort of uh, themes and resonances between them, but then also notice all the differences. It's it's a fun time. Uh, and, and thank you all for coming along on that journey with us, because today we are jumping into another new script from another new playwright for the podcast. We are talking about Rapture, Blister, Burn by Gina Gianfrido.
0: Yeah, this play I got to see. This is one of the plays that was done by the professional theater where I have lived in Arkansas. Um, that is Theater Squared. They did a great production of Rapture capture blister burn when i lived there um and it was one of those plays that left my wife Brienne and i talking and chattering about it after the show and as i've come back to it now her and i've kind of remembered some of what we saw and chatted about way back when so that has been fun and it's fun to talk about a play that i have kind of a visualization for as well
1: yeah, yeah. Well, that's the virtue of this play, too, is it is a talk-after sort of play. Um, there's there's uh, a lot of moral ambiguity in it and lots of choices. <laughs> um, and uh, so you get to align with whoever you kind of want to in the play, with maybe a couple exceptions.
0: Or nobody. Or, <laughs> or all nobody. of them. Which seems to be some of the options discussed by reviewers and commentators. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, well, before right. we get too much farther into a discussion about Rapture Blister Burn, this is that great moment, the moment we know you look forward to, and we point you over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast, patreon.com slash podcast. If you head over there, you can find a way to support no script the Podcast. Many of you are, and those of you who are make doing the show something that Jackson and I can continue to do financially and time commitment-wise. So if you're supporting the show, you make no script happen. If you're not please consider it, because we don't run ads other than this ad that we put in for ourselves every week, so the show it has expenses, has a huge time commitment. If you're not supporting the show, I'd really ask you to consider it. At patreon.com slash podcast, you can choose a tier, um, and that's just a monthly amount. The lowest tier is just a dollar a month, and that means a lot in and of itself, if you'd become a dollar a month supporter of Noscript Podcast. Even at that lowest level, and there are higher ones if you can afford more, but even at that lowest level, you get access to all the stuff that's going on over there. Patron-only posts, which include now videos, also include Jackson and I talking about moments where we've seen plays that we've talked about, talking about other art, oftentimes poetry, book reviews, that kind of stuff, Um, as well as we release the scripts coming up on the show much earlier over at patreon.com slash script podcast. So, please consider heading over there to support the show. We'd really appreciate it if you would.
1: Yes, thank you to all of our patrons over there. Thank you all so much. You make this podcast possible, and uh, we will see you over on patreon.com slash Podcast.
0: And now, back to the script.
1: Back to the script. Here we go. I'm going to contextualize it just a little bit for us. First of all, with uh, I want to give you some context on Gina Gianfrido. Um, she is an American playwright. Uh, she's out of a Brown University's MFA program. She studied with Paula Vogel briefly for a time as well. So there's some connection to last week's uh, a conversation I think we as well. mentioned
0: that last week, how many of the great playwrights that are doing incredible work right now were trained by Paul Vogel. I mean, it's (laughs) it's astounding. And here's another one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it'll be a common theme to see them popping up in, in relevant theater. Um, she, uh, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for, uh, the play that we're talking about today, Rapture, Blister Burn, which was 2013, uh, for that Pulitzer Prize, but then she also was a finalist for her play before that as well, which was Becky Shaw, which was the 2009, uh, Pulitzer Prize finalist for that one. Um, this uh she she's uh, has another of other awards as well. She has the Guggenheim Fellowship in Playwriting, Susan Smith Blackburn Prize, Helen Mirren Award for Emerging Playwrights. She's also a, a screenwriter as well. She's worked on shows like Law and Order and House of Cards, which has some resonance with this play. Absolutely. It does. <laughs> Holy man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. The, the the play itself, as I mentioned, was a finalist for the Pulitzer in 2013. Um, That uh, had a twice extended off-Broadway run at the Playwrights Horizon Theater, which was where it got its uh, off-Broadway debut. It also then went uh, on to uh, have a, a West Coast show that had the same cast in it as well. Um, and, uh, as well as a London's Hampstead theater production in 20, and uh, sorry, uh, London Hampstead theater production in addition to a Goodman production in 2015. So, um, the play, uh, continued to be done and it's a great, um, uh, kind of regional house show as well because it's got a pretty small cast. Um, uh, it's got some kind of, uh, you know, uh, late show vibes to it, uh, that, that you can, uh, sell to, uh, parents looking for a night out or just, uh, folks looking for real good intense uh, drama theater so it's a great show for, for community theater and regional houses as well
0: As I hop into the summary here, this is a good moment to say this episode, because of what the play is, may not be appropriate for all contexts and all people. So this is the maybe if you're at work or around your little ones or or whatever, you may want to stick headphones in for this one um, because this is your chance because I'm about to go past the because (laughs) and the word, the S word is going to come out. Not the S word you're thinking of, but the word sex. Okay. (laughs) This is a play a lot about sex. It's about the politics of sex, the way that sex and feminism have uh, integrated and diverged and had things that they come head to head about. It's about different perspectives on sex. And so it's about uh, affairs and sex within marriage. It's just that is kind of one of the center revolving things that happens in the play. It is about uh, basically a trio of friends, uh, Catherine, Gwen, and Dawn. This trio of friends has been friends since grad school. And in grad school, this is all before the action of the play, Catherine and Dawn were dating. Uh, Dawn, D-O-N, is a man. Catherine and Gwen are women. Catherine and Dawn were dating. Uh, Catherine went off for, like, a London fellowship. And then Dawn and Gwen... Uh, got together, whatever that meant for them at the time, and they ended up getting married. Now, many years later, Catherine, Don, and Gwen are all in their 40s. They haven't spoken in a long, long time, partially because Catherine was hurt by what happened in graduate school. Um, But Don and Gwen have stayed married. They have two kids now. Um, Their marriage is not in a super great place at the beginning of the play, but it is still around. Catherine, how on the other hand, she has gone on to become kind of an academic superstar. She's written some books about feminism and what she calls kind of lowbrow media or entertainment, things like pornography, uh, horror films, uh, like sex phone lines, things like that. She has So she's done a bunch of writing and has become a fairly popular author, thinker, teacher about those things. Um, While Don, uh, he has not really had that level of a career. He taught uh, at smaller colleges for a while and has kind of gone the dean route instead at kind of a small liberal arts college in the town where the play takes place. By uh, an abundance of coincidence, and this play does have an abundance of coincidence a couple of times, uh, the town where Don and Gwen have settled, where Don is now the dean, is the same town that Catherine. Catherine's mother, Alice, lives in. So, at the beginning of the play, that's all backstory. At the beginning of the play, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Catherine has come back to town because her mother, Alice, has recently had a heart attack. And coming back to town to take care of her mother uh, also means sort of reconfronting Don and Gwen after all these years, and perhaps rekindling a friendship. What she sees in them is uh, a couple that has made a family and kind of a homebrow, ho- uh a home life, I mean, kind of uh, work for them, whereas she's gone the kind of successful, very high profile career route, and she's unmarried and does not have any children at this point in her life. Coming back, she kind of is jealous of what goes on in their marriage and life, um, as well as... She knows that she still kind of has feelings for Dawn after all these years sort of kindled in her. Gwen and Don, on the other hand, their marriage is really, really struggling. Uh, Don has not really, Gwen says, held up his end of the deal in terms of taking care of them financially. Um, He's not really pursuing the kinds of jobs he really could get. He doesn't really do a lot. He's lazy. He watched porn all the time is the accusation. Um, They also have a babysitter, um, I'm sorry, Don and Gwen, have a babysitter named Avery. Those are all five of the characters. Alice, Catherine's mother, Catherine... Uh, Gwen, Don. So those are the three friends. Catherine, Gwen, and Don, and the Gwen and Don's babysitter, Avery. How the action of the play unfolds is uh, Catherine is uh, hired to teach a summer class for the school where Don is a dean, and the summer class ends up again, abundance of coincidence, only having two people in it: Gwen and Avery. So Catherine's old friend Gwen from Glad School, and Gwen's babysitter Avery. Uh, in the class, they talk about many things, the history of feminism, the way that feminism and, and horror films intersect, the way that feminism and pornography intersect, the legacy of feminism and sex. Alice, Catherine's mother, she is in her 70s. She also kind of floats around the class and offers her, her perspective as well. That brings kind of goes drinks on. drinks. Yeah, like, brings in yeah. lots of drinks and dry <laughs> humor with her as well. Yeah. Um, So that is kind of happening in this class as they unfold the theory part of it. In practice, Catherine, jealous of the life that Don and Gwen have built, and Gwen is jealous of the high-profile career that Catherine has built, they decide to switch lives. Um, This is after Catherine and Don kindle an affair, um, and the affair ends up with Don saying, "I want to be with Catherine instead of you, Gwen. I'm planning to divorce you, be with Catherine instead." So rather than doing anything too hastily, they decide to switch lives and sort of see how it goes. So Catherine uh, actually lets Don move in with her at her mother's house and his one of his sons, um, and Gwen goes and moves into Catherine's apartment in New York with another of their sons. And um, it doesn't really go well for either of them, actually. <laughs> uh, Catherine can't seem to motivate Don to be anything more than kind of the lazy, I'll just say it, loser that he is, um, which is what she was kind of hoping. Uh, and Gwen doesn't really like the life that she's living in New York in kind of in place of Catherine taking classes. She's going to finish her grad degree, she says. Um, so at the end of the play, Gwen comes back, and she and Don desi- decide to resume their marriage um, without really consulting Catherine, who doesn't really want that to happen. The final scene of the play is that Catherine and Avery, the the babysitter for the other couple, and Catherine's mother, Alice, have kind of a drinking rah-rah session where Catherine and Avery decide to move back to New York together so that Avery can sort of be Catherine's high-profile assistant and they can support each other in whatever is coming next in their lives. Uh, and uh, Alice, Catherine's mother, by the way, is just okay from the heart attack. That's that's kind of, right. It's, I think she's just going to be fine, at least for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> At least that, for a little while. Yeah. yeah, that is uh the kind of the oh that bird's eye view of Rapture Booster Burn.
1: Yeah, nicely done. Way to way to summarize what is, in fact, a very tangled love triangle Oof, drama wow. sort of show. And and actually some different triangles do form. You have the love triangle between those uh those three. You have Catherine, Don, and Gwen uh all having that sort of dynamic. You also have uh Gwen and Catherine and Avery, who are in this triangle in uh, the class that Catherine is teaching, that they wind up being the only two students for. Then you also have Catherine and Avery and Alice who are in this triangle of supporting Catherine in her affair with Dawn, supporting her both um, in the moment when she wants to have it and in figuring out whether she wants to keep it. So there's all sorts of of, uh, kind of connection and interplay between these two different, or three different triangles, as well as the in intense uh, connection between just Don and Catherine that's that's kind of steamily working its way through the play.
0: Right, yeah, I think you're so right to point that out because so much of the play is sort of smooshing these five characters into different arrangements and different groups uh, to see kind of how their personalities shift, how what they're trying to achieve from the others shifts throughout the play. And that, I mean, in some ways, that really relates to the plot and kind of this this sort of, theme, this what if my life had been different, this look at feminism and how it intersects with, uh, with sex, with modern day politics, or at least four, 10 years ago. Um, and you sort of see how does a life different than what I'm used to change me as a person? So you, you sort of see that one after another as these characters are smushed into different relationships. How does Don in romantically involved with sort of a quote-unquote high-power career woman, whatever that means, um, how does that change his personality and behavior? How does Gwen, living in New York on her own, how does that change her? Or how does being in a class again change her behavior? How does being around uh, an old friend change her behavior? Um, for Alice, right, like she, she's a mother and she really is sort of a, a doting mother over Catherine. Um, But how does that change when uh, this guy moves in with this guy and his son moves in and you really see these characters have to navigate and negotiate who they're going to be in all these different arrangements of their lives.
1: Yeah, yeah. While while addressing that core like myth that they hold and that society is talk always talks about of you know if I stop today what I'm doing could I do the thing that I said no to back then, um and 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 then having the so you have the the trio of them all saying that right, Kath- Catherine, Don and Gwen all saying you know what if we just hit the reset button on this on this one kind of moment of choice back then. We could probably still do it, right? Let's try it. Let's try it. Of course, it's more painful than that. Um, but, but into that, you have then the two voices from two different generations on either side of them. Avery and Alice kind of adding their own uh, wisdom and strategies into how they navigate that, that, that uh, wondering, that, that, that question of can we just hit the reset button on this.
0: Yeah, right. Can we still achieve or accomplish these myths that we've held about our life? And that really that's pretty explicit. Later in the play, Avery, the the younger babysitter character, she's got this line. She says, "I was never going to get to the Olympics just like Don was never going to write books, just like Gwen is never going to finish school and have a career. We all have personal mythologies we cherish. The people we love go along with them, but understand they're never going to happen." Hence, they do not push us to make them happen. And this is not, I want to be, you know, that line is not like some kind of grand revelation by the character. In fact, the line is challenged. Is that really true? Um, Can we still change things? I'm not sure that that line is like the voice of the playwright speaking in some kind of truth or theme, but it's a perspective of the play that is stretched and examined by the play, right? The idea that the myths we keep in our head about ourselves, these what if I had done things differently, could I have had a better life? For a different life than the one I have now, that what if is never going to happen? You just ought to let it go. Is one of those ideas that's stretched and examined in the play.
1: Right, right, and I, and I think I mean to some degree. Um you you kind of get the message that you can't like it's it's you know <laughs> it, the going back to it and wondering about it is a legitimate thing but you you can't ever reset that moment i think some of the characters wish to in the moment reset and try it again but there's in fact so much water under the bridge by the point that they try that you can't. And I love Avery for that because she has the clarity. She's like this avatar of, of young thought <laughs> that, that kind of floats into the scenes and just like nails people with, with uh young wisdom. Um, but she, uh, she, uh, yeah, she, she nails it that, you know, I'm never going to uh, go to the Olympics. I can't, the water's under the bridge. Um, and, and so you have that kind of loss as well, that these characters are grappling with the, uh, the loss and the fear of the life um both the life unlived, but also the life that they can never get back to.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry that I don't know how to pronounce this woman's last name, but Jennifer Coombs, or Combs, she played Catherine in the Goodman Theater production. She actually says that her perspective on this play is that it is more a play about what if. Then it really seems. You sort of leave the play on first blush thinking about feminism, thinking about what the role of women is going to be moving forward, thinking about how sex intersects with that. But she says, at, at, at even a more core level than that, this is a play about people trying to ask, what if I had done things differently? What if I do things differently now? And it's not necessarily because they're dissatisfied with their lives, because each of them kind of in their own way have a beautiful life. And really, I mean, for... Gwen and Don, who maybe have the saddest life of any of them, uh, they it's a life that they're desperate to return to by the end of the play. But Catherine has an incredible uh, career and public persona. She's on the cutting edge of thinking and conferences and all this kind of stuff, stuff that she's wanted for a long time. So even when your life turns out beautifully, there is this kind of like what-if At the end of it all, it reminds me of, and this is, I I know this movie's a little controversial, so some of you out there are going (laughs) to roll your eyes at me, but if you've not seen La La Land, I had one of the more moving experiences uh, in cinema at yeah. La La Land. Now, I'm a white guy, so of course I did, right? But at the end of <laughs> La La Land is uh, this this whole <laughs> montage dance, right? The I forget the characters' names, but uh, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling's character, they don't end up together at the end of the movie. Whoa, for Hollywood, it's a big deal. Um, <laughs> but then they, like, skip to later in their lives, and their eyes lock at a jazz club. Both of them have achieved their dreams. She's become a fan. Famous actress. He now owns a jazz club. And what begins is a movie montage of what if, when we remember that moment 10 minutes ago in the film, at least, when we decided not to be together? What if we had decided to be together? What if, what could our life have been like? And that montage plays out, and then it returns to the jazz club, and uh, Emma Stone and her husband now, not Ryan Gosling, decide to leave and just go back to their lives, and Ryan Gosling goes back to his life running a jazz club. That was really moving for me the first time I saw it, because it captured, I think, an experience of human existence that is hard to capture really well, right? This image that lives in your head. Not that I don't love my life now. I love my life now. But there is always going to be a what if.
1: Yeah. No. That's 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 really true. And I think that the uh, the the way this play kind of plays with that um, makes us continue to ask the question uh, on the on the tail end of it, and also ask the question what. Uh, prompts us into those moments of reflection, of those moments of wait, is this has this been the right choice? And for for Catherine, that's kind of the, the the realization that Alice, her mother, um, has had a heart attack. Both of her sisters, I think, have died of a heart attack within a year of having a heart attack. And she's realizing that Alice is kind of the person in her life who Loves her and cares about the temperature she likes her coffee at is one of the things that she says. Um, And she's kind of beginning to wonder if the choices she's made um, lead to her being able to navigate a time after her mother is around. So that kind of like crucible of a moment pushes her into this situation, into this wondering around. Maybe, maybe I should have done something different than follow my career. Maybe I should have invested in 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 a, in a family or something like that. And and the kind of really masterwork of this play is that that's all worked out in the weekly lessons that she's teaching to Avery and to Gwen. <laughs> Who
0: <laughs> masterwork or I abundance mean, of convenience I mean it, <laughs> you know she she teaches on feminism she teaches on the role of women she teaches on uh, sexual politics and she is also undergoing a lot of doubt about the decisions she's made in those right. spheres at the time and so it's not convenient all that much if you think about the fact she's had a whole life of 40 some years at this point and this is the moment so the play just happens to see her at this moment in time when that Intersection occurs, and that's right. what makes it, you know, drama instead of just like watching someone live a life.
1: Right, right, yeah. the inc- the, the 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 inciting incidents are are needed for <laughs> for this play to come about, and yet the way that they end up talking about it, I think the the the, the message that they're that they're kind of grappling with with conversations around like Phyllis Schlafly's, uh writings around feminism and her critique of feminism that they are kind of holding is this like. The, the opposing view for their class. Um, they end up, like, having this really interesting debate around it and uh, Avery, who just, like, hates her, winds up using some of the tactics that she reads in uh, Ph- Phyllis Sch- Schleifle's book by the end of the play. So you, you have that kind of interesting dynamic of the class working its way into life and life working its way into the class and this kind of cycle um, uh, that that gets, uh, the, the main issue of the play gets worked out obliquely in that way.
0: Yeah, and the way that the these like, theoretical academic conversations that they're having in the class um, intersects with their lives, it ends up making the characters less about being sort of like theoretical foibles, right? They hold a particular point of view, and it's their job to argue that point of view in the class, like you would find in like a philosophical diatribe kind of book, a conversational book. They become really three-dimensional people in the ways that their perspectives and their needs and their goals intersect with what they're discussing in the class and change their theory based on how it plays out in their class. And that happens kind of all shifting in one direction and then another and then back again. There is no like I'm supposed to be like even Alice, right? She's not like a am supposed to be this older woman with this kind of wasp perception of like, uh, you know, uh, sex and sexual politics and and women having to be these sort of swoon and faint and get the attention of a man and all that kind of stuff. Although that is a perspective she holds, she also has complicating factors of how that played out in her own life which is that she had what seems to be a fairly distant emotionally unavailable husband who her and her daughter Catherine in this case felt isolated from
1: yeah yeah it's i think it's really interesting those scenes where you have all four of those women in the same room because you have the 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 two women in 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 Glenn and Catherine who we know are somewhat um uh, opposed in some way, or maybe not opposed. They're still friends in the first lesson, at least. But you know that uh, there's, there's, uh, some unrest brewing between the two of them, um, and then you have uh, both Alice in the room on on the one side of the the generational uh, divide, kind of bringing some of her wisdom, but being open to the instruction of of Catherine. Then you have Avery, who's this twenty uh, one year old college student in a long distance relationship with with like a, a documentary film kid um, who's out in in uh, California, and you have her perspective on like how to maintain a relationship well in those. Circumstances, And you just get this, like, especially the first lesson, you get this, like, really beautiful melting pot of perspectives that just get to kind of talk around an issue under Catherine's tutelage. But Catherine is going through her own stuff and uh, has to has to kind of bring herself honestly to the conversation as well.
0: Right, yeah, they don't get much farther into, like, the first class before she's like, well, there goes all of my, like, uh, you know, uh, my ability to be non-partial in this conversation. I'm right. diving in as just a personal member of the conversation so we can kind of throw the instructor hat of I'll play both sides out the window. I have a perspective. I have a life. Here's the life and perspective that I've lived and bring into the room. And this play I think can seem like a kind of uh, diametrically opposed view, extremist view of women's roles, right? Like the homemaker versus the high-powered career woman. I think I even made a joke about that earlier in the episode, right? And, and I love this quote from a, uh, this is from a New York Times discussion about it. She says, uh, Miss Gianfrido's play does not present Gwen and Catherine's lives as two sides of the same tarnished, useless coin. What's exciting about her writing here is the multiplicity of the ideas it engages heady with sharp-witted dialogue about the particularities of women's experiences and I think that is uh, that's the right lens to start with when coming into this play is to look for how incredibly um uh fully formed these people are. And yes, it happens to be about a woman who chose uh, a, a homemaking and a family and children over a career to the point where she didn't even finish grad school and a woman who chose in all almost all cases a career over a family. But the richness of those portrayals and how divided they are about their own choices, about the particular life experiences they've had, make this a really robust not necessarily competition of ideas, but sort of longing for the clarity of the ideas that is maybe impossible, which is
1: helped so significantly by the fact that both characters think the other one's life is better. Um, so, so you don't have that like judgment of one or the other. You have Sometimes uh, the respective parties, like Gwen, judges herself, and and Catherine judges herself in her own worldview. So you have this like this um, uh, equality in in the two different viewpoints, and it comes down to choosing, right? It comes down to a choice, um, as as we've mentioned before. And even when uh, even when you get to choose to have the other one. How does that end up affecting your life? So when, when Gwen goes off to New York, she uh, winds up hating it because she's the oldest one in all her classes. She's still losing her son, which is something that she uh, fears losing her son. I put in air quotes. He's just like being a teenager and going through normal teenage leaving home rhythms. Um, and uh, so so you still have all of that. um uh attention that she was holding and she realizes that the choice that she maybe wanted to make wasn't in fact the choice that she she wishes to continue making
0: and i'm not even sure that at the core of the characters is like this deep truth that they really think the other person has it better and there there's a there is a jealousy and a longing but i'm not sure it's it's necessarily so starkly to I want to live your life or I want to have made the choices you've made. I, th- I think it, to me it feels more about the, the worry of the unknown. Did I make the right choice and how can I know that? All I know is that the place that I'm in in my life, not everything is hunky-dory great for me. And there's a recognition, perhaps, that that is true for other lives as well, other choices as well. But the question of, did I make the right choice? What if I hadn't made the choices I made? That unknown is is what I think drives these, these decisions to switch lives, quote unquote, more than like a really clear and satiated jealousy for what the other person has accomplished or achieved.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think definitely, uh, definitely with Gwen, that is the case, definitely with Don, that is the case. I wonder if there isn't there, there, there is something else, I think, in Catherine that is perhaps just a little bit. Um, more visceral for her. Um, because in spite of the fact that um, uh, Don just like flip-flops mercilessly throughout the play um, <laughs> and and uh, winds up leaving her at the end um, to go back to Gwen, even though they've kind of uh, had this summer uh, affair together, um, I think she actually does seem to love him and does actually seem to want to go back and try this over again to some degree. She is slowly cajoled out of it by the end of the play with the help of Avery and Alice who kind of paint this new vision of life in New York with the two of them leading like a sitcom lifestyle in New York um, that they can maybe live together. But she has like something, something else deeper that she wants out of this um, and, and was hoping for out of her return to the relationship with Don.
0: Whether, I, I mean, I know that she claims that it's Dawn specifically that she's right. after, but that proposition is questioned by so many of the other characters so directly <laughs> that it makes you wonder how um, how Gian, Gina Gianfrido wants you to perceive Catherine's desire for Dawn because the dude is an absolute loser. <laughs> Entertainment Weekly, uh, they wrote a review (laughs) of the play, and they put it like this. There's nothing more enjoyable than watching super smart characters make exceedingly dumb decisions. And seeing beautiful, brilliant Kathy entangled with internet porn-addicted pothead Don sets off an almost unbelievable chain of sometimes comic, mostly tragic events. I mean, it, it does seem like, from if you're the audience looking in... Watching Catherine make these decisions is is watching someone make a dumb decision. It just doesn't seem like the play is framed in the sense of like, she's off to get her one true love. It seems more like, is there something going on in your life which is prompting you to make this very silly sort of mistake of blindness?
1: Absolutely. I think the play is ab- definitely saying that Avery notices it almost right away. Like Avery, when Avery notices that Don has moved in, um, uh, she's like, oh, no. And the stage direction says, like, does she still have time to talk her out of this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so absolutely. I think the play is, is hinted in that direction. But th- I, I still think that there's enough lines from Catherine all the way into the last scene where she says, like, she still says Don was worthy in the last scene of the play. Um, So so I think there's some there's something in Catherine that was hoping for something more uh, that is intensely disappointed um, that that it that not not I think and I think this is the thing that she didn't get to choose to not because Gwen and Don get to choose to not. Yeah. um, And and. Catherine doesn't, Catherine gets it taken away from her, even though she's trying so hard, even though she like capitulates on what she thinks um, she wants from Don to try to like present herself in a way like she, she, she joins him in his porn habit. She tries to cajole him into writing books in a way that will actually work and it doesn't. Um, So, so you, I I think that's the, that's the difference is it's ripped away from her and she still wants it as opposed to Gwen and Don, who tried it on and said, nah, I'm choosing something else.
0: So, well, I don't know. What do you think it is about the, I mean, the way this play is written of this trio, each of them who changes their life significantly in some way in the course of the play. Catherine is the only one who seems to enjoy the life change, right? Gwen seems yeah. like after a month is ready to come home. In fact, she does come home. And she just she does not want the life that she thought she did, taking classes to finish her degree, um, pursuing some sort of career in New York City, this dream that she's had. She didn't end up liking it that much, so she falls back on coming home um Dawn, even though you know at some sort of level and i think both of the other women say this to him like you're sort of you're getting everything you say you want in terms of the sex in terms of uh the the somebody to challenge you intellectually all of this kind of stuff um he when he meets with gwen again says I'm, i don't want this anymore i want to come back to my marriage with you and only catherine is left going i was getting what i wanted out of this
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, but maybe it's maybe it's the the fear of being alone coming up right that the the fear of her mother losing her mother that is like really solidified how alone she feels we know that um she, she what is slowly revealed is a phone call that took place prior to the events of the play where she called um Don and or she was trying to call Don but got Gwen instead she was very drunk like she doesn't remember the call drunk um and said that she 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 like needed a job she wanted to come back to to the city that her mother lives in that, that Don is the, the Dean at. And, um, and we find out more and more about that night, eventually that she had a one night stand with someone that there was um, some pretty aggressive sex play and choking in that, in that sort of encounter that she slowly remembers asking for. So she's kind of on the And she, and that she's been drinking heavily for like months since her, since her mother had her heart attack. So you have all these things that that are kind of pushing her to realize something needs to change. I'm I'm reacting to something. There's something big happening, and I think that is maybe why um, she she pushes so hard for this thing and thinks she wants it so bad.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. That of those three characters, it seems as if Catherine is the one that is having some sort of external crisis. I mean, I mean external, not in terms of herself, but in terms of that the trio. What happens with Catherine and Dawn, I'm sorry, with Gwen and Dawn, it seems like it's largely prompted by the return of Catherine to their lives. Although their lives have things that are unfulfilled, parts of their marriage that are not what they want them to be, and they've considered divorce, they had a kid instead, they say, yikes. Right. Um, in, in spite of all that, there doesn't seem to be like an immediate crisis facing them. Them. What is facing them is only the temptation of now that Catherine's back, we can try something different. There's there doesn't there's not as big of a, 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 a something pushing them to make that decision other than just the temptation of now she's back around. Whereas for Catherine, all of those things that you mentioned, her life. It, something is going on with her that is deeper and, and more uh, problematic, more of a crisis that she's facing. And that prompts her to seek back out Don and Gwen and yeah. rekindle all of this. And so sh- she brings in the external crisis.
1: Right, right. It's the stranger comes to town, sort of, um, and yet we're kind of uh, riding along with the stranger as she comes into town. Chef, I, I mean, we could we could quibble a little bit about protagonist and and whatnot, but I think Catherine is the protagonist of the play. Um, and we we come into town with her. We also learn that she's kind of brought into town, which is an interesting aspect. Gwen like basically sets up all the things that she asks for drunkenly um, to try to kind of she she says at least to try to create the situation where maybe this switcheroo can happen which is another kind of, you know, convenient manipulation hope. Very house of cardsy by the way. Yeah, There's my really? house of cards <laughs> in my Um but like big machinations for Gwen to pull off and she somehow manages to do it. So yeah, it's definitely this kind of uh it's only yeah, the change is only possible for Gwen and Don because she came to town. I think they probably would have, you know, gone on to em- or live this kind of sort of marriage of tension for a very long time um if 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 she hadn't
0: and in fact, they agree to continue living it. It's true, they go right back to it. <laughs> I mean, it's not like they resolve their marriage in some sort of beautiful, like, I'll be perfect and you'll be perfect and marriage will be perfect from now. They basically say, Don is like, I guess I could stop watching porn. And Gwen is like, I guess I could try to get a little more interested in sex. Like, I'm not sure. <laughs> it doesn't seem like their marriage is like gonna vastly improve at the end yeah. of the play.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely not. However, it does seem like... Um uh Catherine and Avery's life and Alice's life will kind of improve by the end of the place Like the motion of, of of growth for characters does seem to be on the side of Avery and Catherine, because uh Avery is, is leaving this uh <laughs> relationship that she's trying to, you know, maintain over over distance with a guy who's already kind of cheating on her that she knows is cheating on her. Emotionally
0: cheating on her. He's not right. sleeping with her. She makes that very clear.
1: Very clear. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the the return to New York for Catherine and the return to some sort of flow for her with the assistance of Avery. Um, and and the interesting, the really the really good line from Avery in there too. Again, this fountain of wisdom. Um, that that uh, uh, Catherine says, um, uh, I, I want a relationship with Don so that someone is there. Uh, to love me or to care about things about me. And Avery says, well that's that's kind of what friends can be for. Um and and uh Catherine has the, the the return that there's like there's things in life that um that you can't share with friends and that's that's part of her worry. But you see that kind of acted on by Avery at the end of the play. She offers to come and be a part of her life in New York and she's excited about it. She is invited to come to Italy with her by the end of it. So so yeah there's that there's that kind of hope that this friendship whatever it is can grow and at least give some uh, direction forward for Catherine. Whereas Gwen and Don are are back to what they had at the beginning with some damage done.
0: (laughs) Let me try to ask this question in a way that makes sense. So if you think about like Catherine as a character and the journey that she's on, whatever that is, do you think this is a play more about like an unfulfilled journey, like she's on a journey towards a goal, and at the end of the play she doesn't achieve that, which is which is a way to end stories. You just the the hero loses, right. or is this a? Is there some sort of journey that she's on which is resolved somehow at the end of the play, where where whether she knows it or not, she has achieved what she has been after the whole time. Like if you, this is probably this is not really correct, but if you said. Catherine is out to uh, solve her loneliness problem, then you would say, well, a- she kindles a friendship with Avery who's going to come and live with her at the end of the play. Problem solved, right? That, so it, is it that kind of a play or is this a play where the hero just loses? She goes back to try to uh, have a life that she chose to give up a long time ago and she just can't.
1: Yeah, boy. Um, I think it depends on whose perspective you take. I think from I I, I wonder if from Catherine's perspective, she discovers that what she wants can't happen. So in in the in the kind of. uh, 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 Yeah, the more the the more stripped down, simplistic version is she tries for a thing and and fails at it. Um, But I think there's also then a kind of denouement ending where you figure out um, there is more as a result of that losing, or there is a greater worth of what you have um, and the choices that you already made as a result of that losing. Um, I I, I think there there could be an argument for the um, sets out to be sure she's not alone, but then... I don't know. That feels super convenient then for Avery to be the solution to that aloneness.
0: Yeah, that that's a very. <laughs> I mean, I don't. That, that definitely is not the journey she's on. If only just yeah. because Gina Giamfritta is a better playwright than that, and that journey is not resolved by Catherine. But that's kind of it's not like a problem of the play. It's just a complication when discussing Catherine's journey. And it's one that we have talked about, which is that she is dumped at the end of the play rather than doing the dumping, right? So just right. structurally, as a character, what happens in the play to impact her life is is not a choice made by her at the end it's not a choice that she wants even in fact she tries very hard to make sure it doesn't happen in the scene where don dumps her so what where in those final whatever 15 pages does does Catherine make a choice to i I just saw matilda recently so i'm thinking about (laughs) change your story to change her story right
1: and and if, if that's if that's the you know the the goal is to look for the choice moment, I think the choice is in in saying that she is in fact going to trust her mother alone. Um, there's because that is that is the, one of the final choices she makes in saying yes to this dream with Avery um, to go off and live in New York um, is that she is going to leave her mother and and the, and kind of leave the the love zone of the person who cares about her and and wonder about what sort of life she can make. Um, out of that love zone with the knowledge that the love zone is going to leave soon or could leave soon. Um, so so you have that that kind of choice away from fear maybe a choice to live in spite of fear and continue to try and push instead of uh, capitulating to fear and and just uh, kind of holding on to her mom until she, passes on.
0: Right. I think the holding on verb is a nice sort of action metaphor for the play. If Catherine is on a journey of I feel like I'm losing all of these things that have propped me up. This myth in my head about what Don and I could have been if we would have been together. This idea that my mother who loves me is gonna be around forever. All of this is floating away. And so what you watch happen in the play is her grab as tightly as she can to all of those things, literally moving back into her mother's house when her mother, everybody around her says her mother seems perfectly fine. She feels yeah. the need to move back into like, take care of her but again her mother seems fine Uh, but she wants to so tightly hold on to that and then she wants to so tightly hold on to this myth about what her and don's relationship could have been that she literally tries it out for a while right (laughs) and so the kind of the final choice this action is is an action of letting go at the end of the play choosing to release all these things that she's clenched so tightly to her in a moment of crisis
1: mm-hmm yeah yeah and in, and in that way she creates something new from the path one of the few characters who can Avery then rides along because she's cool. Um, but, the but, Avery's uh, but a great character. She is. She's just so great. She has all these like witticisms and fresh perspective to kind of bring, bring to the table to like a professor too. One of the great things about Avery as a character is she reverses the professor role. She reverses the power structure. Um, Catherine even says at one point, the, I feel weird asking you advice about how I should be having a relationship right now. Yeah. Um. So, so yeah, it's, she, she's a, a great character to kind of, Throw some chaos
0: into it. Well, and she's, Gina Gianfrido uses the Avery character so smartly in this play because she is able to be at the same time a stranger who needs things explained to her for the the benefit of the audience, right? Exposition kind of stuff. Because Avery doesn't know anything about the history of Catherine and Gwen and Dawn. So, and everybody else in the play would, right? So in order to tell that to the audience, Avery is used as the sort of, we're going to explain to you what's happened in our past and the audience has the benefit of learning but then she is also the one who has the inside information about Gwen and Don's marriage now and so on the one hand she's the outsider that needs the new information and the insider who can provide the new information to the outsider Catherine I mean it's it's (laughs) a brilliant dual character role for her
1: yeah, she's like a nexus of information where she can, she like needs and wants, and then also is not taking in new information and constantly brings in like new books to the the conversation and brings in other lines of thought to their debates around feminism. Um, and, and speaking of which, like we we've mentioned it obliquely a couple of times, but those scenes in the middle and really throughout this play. Uh, is 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 about feminism <laughs> um there we've been talking about some of the like character motivations and roles and all that but these middle scenes are just great um uh, little little capsules of of debate and wondering around feminist thought and again with having the multiple generational perspective in it uh Gianfrido has managed to encapsulate that as well the the the, the bringing of different perspectives from the various waves of feminism and attention to feminism throughout time and brought them into these conversations, these little uh, crucible moments around a class with these four characters all talking about them.
0: Yeah, it actually, as I was reading it, it reminded me of the Heidi Chronicles by Wendy Westerstein. Yeah. And, and then as I was doing the research between all the different readings and prep and stuff, I discovered, and I, I this is not me too to me on I just want to note how clear the connection is between this play and the Heidi Chronicles, that Gina Gianfrido has called this play, her play, an unwitting homage to the Heidi Chronicles. <laughs> I mean, the connection when you have all of these different types of women who bring in all these different different experiences that weigh on, that lend experience and and life and and questions and complexity to these questions of what feminism is going to become, what the the role of women in society is going to become, all of this stuff. It is very Heidi Chronicles-esque, but for, I mean, what, the play was written like 2012, 2013, so, but for 30, 40 years later.
1: Right. Yeah, it kind of advances the conversation and and again, <laughs> to to bring Avery into it brings in like a new wave of feminism and that too. Um so so yeah, you get you get you get the advanced conversation, the continued uh uh debate between the different generations and that's, you know, that's that's to some degree what you're coming to the show for and what you leave talking uh, about from the show is cuz cuz again, with the choice of all of these women, um, and what they get to choose. And when they, when they get that choice taken away from them, that's all part of the equality of choice that I believe is a phrase that comes up in, in one of the debates in the middle of the play, the equality of choice. Um, and that's the, that's the kind of core of, of a lot of the action of the play, in addition to some of the kind of, uh, um, obvious conversation within the class settings.
0: Yeah, and and as we just continue to praise Gina Gianfrido for all of the different clever things she's done structurally, using that contrived situation to drive sort of forced conversation around a theoretical topic that then can bleed over into the personal. I mean, even if you don't like this play, it's a really wonderfully done example of how to use that technique to force people into Encounters with contrived situations. I mean, it's really lovely, even for like playwriting class kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's just like a beautiful meltdown with Gwen, who is just clearly talking about the fact that she found out about the affair between Don and Catherine. Um, but through the, uh, the, the 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 chapter that she was supposed to present on in the class, um, that that's just like a perfect example of like how to say one thing, but be talking about another and just slowly watch the, the kind of wheel unravel on, (laughs) on Gwen through that whole scene.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's not quite dramatic irony because I think that everybody, including the characters know that the people know, but there is a sense of watching that classroom scene where Gwen is going to explode at the end and knowing that Gwen has this suspicion of the affair, even while you, you see sort of Catherine be kind of unwitting about her suspicion for just that little bit until the explosion happens. That's so satisfying. Well, I
1: think that's about all the time that we have for this particular conversation on Rapture, Blister, Burn by Gina Gianfrido. There's there's plenty more conversation to have. We kind of uh, just kind of gave Don the, the brush off for most of our conversation. He's not <laughs> worth your time. It's not worth the time. Um, <laughs> 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 but there's definitely more conversation to be had around this place, so we'd love to continue the conversation with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at Noscript Podcast. We also have a Gmail noscriptpodcast at gmail.com find us on any of those sites we'd love to keep talking about Rapture Blister
0: Burn with you absolutely if you'd like to recommend this podcast to your family, friends, loved ones anybody you know that likes theater or scripts send them our way we're at Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts and also Podbeam where we're hosted if you want to just like us on Facebook you can find the new episode posted to our Facebook feed every Monday when they are released so, until next week when we are coming at you with another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.